something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Paper Ghosts is a production of iHeartRadio. Among the cold cases, 20-year-old Susan LaRosa vanished on a trip to a store in Rockville in 1975. She was supposed to go there to get the baby some formula and to call my mom from the payphone. And she never came home. The disappearance of Susan LaRosa has never officially been associated with the other missing girls. Her face or her case was never included on those missing person flyers posted around town. To law enforcement, there was no connection. Maybe because she was more than a decade older than the youngest of the girls. Still, as an investigator, I can't ignore facts. One of which is that within a seven-year span, Susan LaRosa became the fourth female to go missing, not just in the same town, but within a few miles of one another and, in three of the cases, merely blocks away. I've asked the Vernon PD if they ever considered these cases the work of a serial killer. When I hear of disappearances so similar, occurring in the same general location, it's hard to ignore the potential. 
But as I began speaking with detectives in 2009, the year I started my investigation, they said they had looked at every possibility but discounted it. I've interviewed serial killers throughout my career, written seven books about them, and the one common admission they all have shared is that there are no coincidences when children go missing within this close proximity, and that you need to look not only for victim profile similarities, but location, time of day, and opportunity. One serial killer, who I've interviewed for the past eight years, insists that when the obvious presents itself, believe it. Because most serial abduction cases are not the work of a diabolical genius or criminal mastermind. They are committed by a disorganized deviant, hyper-focused on one goal, who will make mistakes. As he's told me, find those common mistakes and you find your killer. You can hear him here in an interview I conducted years ago as he puts the mindset of a serial killer into perspective. His name, Keith Hunter Jesperson, the happy face killer. There's a wonderment of whether or not I want to kill or not. I was, I was kind of, I'm kind of wired maybe a little different than most. Like, you know, most serial killers are not criminals. You understand this, right? Explain. Whereas a serial killer is not necessarily a criminal at all. He's just a killer. In other words, I'm not, I won't go out of my way to rob someone. I won't go out, I won't do, I won't uh, home invade. I won't do this. Well, of course, PTK did, but he didn't go in there to, to rob. He went in to kill. Our motive is actually just to kill. Previously on Paper Ghosts. She was with uh, a group of young men and her friend, who was the same age as her, and they went joyriding. There was drinking involved, and they decided to throw pumpkins out the window and were pulled over. And they took Lisa to the state police barracks. He came over to my house. To, um, she wanted to leave my mom and dad a note saying that she was very sorry and, and, you know, embarrassed that, you know, we got in trouble. And at that point, she decided, you know, she was going to leave and try and hitchhike home and never made it home. And I'll never forget it. She came to my house in a flurry and she said, I wish it was you. I wish it was you that was dead. My name is M. William Phelps. This is Paper Ghosts. The connection between Susan LaRosa and one of the other missing girls became apparent to me when I was speaking to Maria Scro, who you heard in the last episode. Maria was Lisa White's best friend and the last person to see Lisa alive, minutes before she presumably hitchhiked home alone. Maria told me she used to babysit for the La Rosa family. Think about that for a moment. Lisa White's best friend babysat for a girl who would herself go missing a year after Lisa. I had never heard this before, and I know law enforcement had no clue. Not one detective had ever asked the question. And to be fair, why would they? But knowing what I now know, it has to be considered. 
cold case work is as much about inclusion as it is about exclusion. Susan was a young mom, just 20 years old, and already she had three young children. She had dark black hair cut just above her shoulders, Peter Pan style. Susan was petite, four feet, eight inches tall, 95 pounds, green eyes. That's the extent of what you'd know about Susan LaRosa if you read about her case in the newspapers. But after years of looking into her story and reviewing documents never before seen by the public, I knew better than to take anything at face value. you got to understand our family was a very uh, fractured family. There wasn't much love or attention. That's Ann Prentice, one of Susan LaRosa's four sisters. Ann was the second oldest, just one year younger than Susan. My mother only had attention or time for Sue. Sue was her child, and the other children really didn't exist. Sue, Sue was a lot of trouble. Sue was into drugs. Sue had abortions. Sue had overdoses. She had... Uh, she she would run off with this guy, that guy. Uh, she was having sex with my uncles. She, I mean, it was it was a hell house. And then Sue got married to Robert, and she moved out. And my mother seemed to be happy at that point. She thought, "Wow, somebody took her off my hands, and, and he's going to make everything wonderful." Robert is Bob Larosa. Susan was 18 when she moved out of her family's home and married Bob. Throughout my interviews and research, I've developed two varying versions of how they met. One person, close to Bob, told me he met Susan while she was in a psychiatric hospital as he was there visiting someone else. That, same as lots of public reports and other information I've dug up in Susan's case, is false. Susan and Bob lived less than a mile from each other on Crystal Lake. There can be no doubt they hooked up because they were neighbors, which is the version everyone of Susan's immediate family members agrees with. Ever since Susan's disappearance in 1975, her family is kept out of the media spotlight. I've spoken to many of them over the years about when they'd feel ready to talk about what happened to Susan, and they believe it's now or never. So my sister Anna Terry Shanks is Susan LaRosa's youngest sister. Tell me about Bob. What kind of guy is Bob to your sister? Bob LaRosa was a very um, quiet kind of guy. Their dynamic was kind of odd. Like, she uh, wasn't the best housekeeper, wasn't the best cook. She, uh, I guess, one time baked cake and it fell apart, so she scotch taped it together and thought it would be okay but you know whatever she was just a free spirit kind of gal would you say he was a good husband to her yes i i do i i wish he would have been better in that he would have been stronger and crushed her when it came to the kids as far as her discipline he was never home he was always i used to go sprat meddling with him he didn't have a real job he and i used to drive around the lake and Stafford area and look for scrap metal, and then we go to the junkyard and sell it so he could put food on the table. Susan and Bob had two sons, Maurice, who goes by Mo, and Robert, Robbie Jr., and a daughter, Stacy, the oldest. 
Each child is nine months apart. But there was something about Susan's middle child, Terry says, that turned Susan off, that scared her. Susan did not like the middle child, Robbie, and for whatever reason, treated him the most poorly out of the three. My sister Sue was not a good mother. She was, she was a horrible mother, actually. She was an abusive mother. She didn't know how to love. She didn't know how to be a mom. These kids were not what she wanted. They never were what she wanted. And was Bob involved in drugs? To my knowledge, no. To my knowledge, he was not. Would you say she loved Bob? In her way, yes. I, I, she had an odd way of... Susan was a brilliant young woman. She was brilliant. But unfortunately, she got involved with heroin. Uh, yeah, that was a demon she had before she met Robert. So Robert was sort of like someone that was helping save her. On the day Susan LaRosa went missing, June 22, 1975, her husband Bob told police Susan left their Rockville, Connecticut apartment in the early evening to go to the nearby drugstore, something she did every day and never returned home. I wondered what Terry recalled from those early days after her sister vanished. Feelings, thoughts, memories. To me, the questions we ask are as important as the answers we get. A month to the day that she went missing was her 21st birthday. And she always told my mom, on my 21st birthday, I'm coming by the house, I'm gonna be streaking, you watch, you wait for me, you wait for me, I'm gonna come running by. You know, streaking, being totally buck naked. That's what That was her plan. So my mom, the whole day, sat there, probably smoked three packs of cigarettes, waiting. This kills me every time. But she never came. She never came. And that's when... That's when everything fell apart. My mother could not, she didn't know how to function. She did not know what to do. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know how to walk. She didn't know how to talk. She didn't know how to be. Susan was her firstborn. Susan, at the same time, uh, Susan and my mom went through a lot together. They were very close. They had a very close bond. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then 
Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal Podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Stacy thought she had the perfect husband. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover for Justin Rutherford to hide behind. They led me into the house, and... 
I mean, it was like a movie. He was sitting at our kitchen table. The cops were guarding him. Stacy learned how far her husband would go to save himself. I slept with a loaded gun next to my bed. He did not just say, I wish he was dead. He actually gave details and explained different scenarios on how to kill him. He, to me, is scarier than Jeffrey Dahmer. Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To get a better understanding, I need to take a look at what happened on the night Susan LaRosa disappeared. There are facts I can report with absolute certainty, facts made public here for the first time in 45 years, which begin to not only answer a lot of questions, but lead me to clues in several of the other missing girl cases. For example, I know from law enforcement documents written the day after Susan went missing that Bob LaRosa told police he and Susan argued because Susan struck one of the kids. Again, here's Susan's sister, Terry Shanks. Uh, she went off on a little one, and she backhanded him, split his head open. Uh, kid was bleeding profusely. So you're talking about the night she went missing that, yes. that she hit. She did hit, yes. She did hit him. In a police report I've obtained, Bob LaRosa claimed Susan hit their middle child, Robert, who was only 18 months old at the time. The injury caused Robert to bleed. The family has always believed it was a wound to the boy's head, but police reports confirm it was his bottom, lower lip, and that the cut was not bad at all. This all happened on the day Susan disappeared. There's no mention of a head wound. According to Bob, Susan then grabbed a $10 bill and a quarter and left the apartment. Bob said Susan left their apartment at approximately 6.30 p.m. to go to the drugstore to call her mother and pick up baby formula. There was only one drugstore nearby, Arthur's Drugs. Susan was there every day, same time, using the payphone, buying cigarettes and baby items. Maria Skrull, the La Rosa babysitter and Lisa White's best friend, confirmed this detail for me. That Susan would call her mother every day from a payphone at Arthur's Drugs, just a few short blocks west of the La Rosa's apartment. When Susan failed to return home, Bob called relatives with no results. At 12.39 p.m. the next day, 18 hours later, Bob La Rosa called the Vernon PD to report Susan was missing. He said his wife did not come home, but he did not want to file a missing person report yet. It was not until later that same day, near dark, when Bob decided to file one. The question is, why wait almost 24 hours later before filing a report? How long you been, uh, how long you been made your crimes now, Bill? 
been a total of about six years now in investigations. Lieutenant Bill Meyer has been with the Vernon Police and now heads major crimes since 2002. He stands six feet or so and has that familiar buzz cut you'd expect to see on a cop. Bill is one of the most practical investigators I know in the Tritown region. He is unafraid to say when cops have made mistakes, or they go above and beyond, which is something I greatly appreciate. That kind of honesty and self-evaluation is imperative when reinvestigating cold cases. I've known Bill for a long time and have an immense amount of respect for the guy. He stopped by my office one morning as I was immersed in the cases. We stood in my garage, talking, catching up. He explained a few things to me off the record, putting a new perspective on the notion that what you read and hear online about cold cases is likely 50% or more bullshit. You really have to see actual documents and photos to truly understand what you're working with. And in these cases, those resources, including interviews with witnesses and family and even suspects, is really all we have to go on. What's the worst investigation you've been involved in in Vernon, off the top of your head? I mean, there's, there's definitely different ways to categorize worst. The ones that keep you up at night. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the child cases, especially with young children. Um, Is there a lot of sexual exploitation going on still? We get a lot. A lot, huh? Several a month, yeah. Yeah. A lot. If we go back to the 60s and 70s, women, families didn't report that stuff, right? No. It was a different time. And, and I think, too, I think they were scared that, A, the police wouldn't believe them. Uh, certainly their parents wouldn't believe them, right? And a lot of people have told me that I've interviewed in all these cases have said, you know, we were told what happens in this house stays in this house, you know? Yeah, in the 80s, I mean, domestic violence really came of age. Uh, Tracy Thurman case out in Torrington was kind of one of the turning points in Connecticut and across the country. The Tracy Thurman case was a high-profile watershed moment in the country with regards to how domestic violence was viewed. In May 1993, Tracy Thurman called the Torrington, Connecticut Police Department and reported that her estranged husband had beaten her and was now threatening to kill her. The Torrington police told Tracy to come back in three weeks when the officer handling domestic cases returned from vacation. Two weeks later, she called again. This time, one officer arrived, and 21-year-old Tracy lay critically wounded from multiple stab wounds bloodied in her front yard as her husband stood over her with a knife. The husband was not arrested. He even kicked Tracy in the head in front of the officer. It was not until her husband tried to assault her as she lay on a stretcher and was being placed inside an ambulance that he was finally put in handcuffs. Tracy sued the town. There was a book and movie made about the case, and Tracy became the face of domestic violence reform. Bill continues, explaining it from a law enforcement perspective 30, 40 years ago. And the reality, honestly, is sickening. Police used to handle domestic violence just with a warning, you know, and, and they would tell husbands, you know, control your wife or go back inside, don't call us. Uh, now, completely different procedures. I mean, with mandatory arrests and mandatory referral to services, and our focus is really on stopping the cycle of domestic violence. 
But it wasn't just men abusing women. A subject rarely talked about then was women abusing men or wives abusing their husbands. Susan didn't limit her abuse to just her children. I've learned from her sister Anne that Bob was subject to her violence as well. I saw her crack him over the head with a cast iron frying pan where he needed stitches, and he didn't do a thing about it because it just wasn't in him to do that. And he put up with a lot. So we know violence was common in the La Rosa home, most definitely from Susan. According to a police report I've obtained, within the year leading up to her disappearance, Susan had actually stabbed Bob during a heated argument and abused her children. So if abusers could get away with beating and stabbing their spouses, think about what else they got away with inside the home. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. 
We're actually reopening an old case and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal Podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Stacy thought she had the perfect husband. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover for Justin Rutherford to hide behind. They led me into the house, and... I mean, it was like a movie. He was sitting at our kitchen table. The cops were guarding him. Stacy learned how far her husband would go to save himself. I slept with a loaded gun next to my bed. He did not just say, I wish he was dead. He actually gave details and explained different scenarios on how to kill him. He, to me, is scarier than Jeffrey Dahmer. Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was a gruesome discovery. Kind of the last thing loggers wiping an interstate here in Vernon, Connecticut, would have ever thought they'd come upon. Unlike the other missing girl cases I've been investigating, Susan LaRosa's story actually had tangible evidence. On May 19, 1978, about three years after she went missing, construction workers widening Interstate 86 in Vernon, Rockville, discovered what was left of Susan's body in a wooded area off an old logging road. This was about 3.6 miles away from the La Rosa apartment. Today, as it was back then, the area is dense woods and very secluded the kind of place where kids in the 70s and 80s held keg parties and bonfires. I can say from my experience as an investigator and someone who has lived in the town most of my life, whoever dumped Susan LaRosa's body out there knew that area very well. That's not where you're going to dump a body if you're not in a hurry. You know, if, if Susan fell victim to a serial killer, I don't think that's where they would have found her. Retired Detective John Collins was the lieutenant in charge of major crimes for the Vernon Police Department back in 2002. In 2004, 
his department made a concerted effort to reopen Susan LaRosa's case. There is, arguably, no one else who knows more about Susan's murder than John Collins. Susan was found fully clothed. Her pants fly was unbuttoned and her zipper down. She had no other injuries besides a fatal fracture to her skull. She only had two dimes and a nickel. That's 25 cents in her pocket. Remember, Bob LaRosa told police Susan took $10 and a quarter when she left the house. He made a point several times during several interviews over the years to say a quarter. Why would Susan have then two dimes and a nickel on her? Well, a payphone call in Connecticut in 1975 cost a dime. Was Bob suggesting that his wife had a quarter because finding two dimes and a nickel on her meant she must have reached the drugstore after leaving their home and exchanged the quarter to make her daily call to her mother? Much different from the other missing young girls I've been investigating, law enforcement had leads to go on with regard to Susan's disappearance. Mainly, a crime scene, albeit secondary because it was clear to the coroner and detectives that Susan was not murdered at the location her remains were found. They also had a huge breadcrumb to follow, the last person to see Susan alive before she went missing. Her husband, Bob LaRosa. Even though uh, Bob looked like a prime suspect, you know, we, we still, uh, we went about it uh, with an open mind. And the information that we got didn't really point us in any other directions. Weeks after Susan's body was discovered, Bob LaRosa was taken into police custody and questioned for two hours. At the time, law enforcement publicly stated Bob was not a suspect and foul play was not a path they were pursuing. It was a ploy, you know, to make him feel as though he was helping the investigation and he was not a person of interest. But in reality, there were no other suspects besides Bob. Based on the police report, which has not been made public until now, Bob told police he believed Susan was not messing around with other guys. But to everyone in Susan's family at the time and later, when talking publicly to the Hartford Current newspaper, Bob starkly contradicted himself, saying, quote, I was under the impression that she took off with another guy. She was always flirting with other guys. End quote. They had a very tumultuous relationship. There was cheating on both sides. There was... Uh, indications of domestic violence, domestic issues. And, and as, as you know, when a woman goes missing or when a woman turns up dead, if you just blindly went and arrested the husband, you'd have a good batting average. Family members have told me that Susan's emotional mental state was stable and her physical condition good on the day she disappeared. But Bob would routinely chastise his wife's mental state to her family. He consistently told one story to police and a different story to family and friends, which, in the eyes of law enforcement, made him a prime suspect. The truth is inherent, infallible. It does not change. 
At one point during that interview, a detective, in what I think is a brilliant Columbo-like move, casually explained to Bob that if he had, you know, accidentally killed his wife, it would be considered, quote, negligent homicide. Bob's response to that? How much time will I get? An innocent person doesn't ask that question. A hundred times out of a hundred times, an innocent person does not ask that question. There was never any official record of Bob being violent with Susan. But look, I'm far from naive. I've written extensively about domestic violence cases, many of which have ended in murder. The way it has always been explained to me by experts is this. In 75% of murder cases, the victim knows the murderer. According to the Centers for Disease Control, over half of the killings of women in America are related to intimate partner violence, with the vast majority of the victims dying at the hands of a current or former romantic partner. Staggering statistics. In other words, when a wife is murdered, you'd hit the bullseye just about every time if every dart you tossed was aimed at the husband. I had asked Susan's youngest sister, Terry, what she believed happened that night between Susan and Bob. The night Susan hit her middle child, split the inside of his lip, and supposedly left the apartment on her own to go to the drugstore. I think that what happened was eventually um, he had it. I think one night he got home from work and um, shit happened. So the theory the family has is... That either, okay, he went off on her because he couldn't take it anymore and he was trying to protect his, his kid. So he either took a piece of pipe that he always had in the house because he always collected it and knocked her with it or he just knocked her down and she smashed her head against a tub. Terry then described what else the family has always believed. Because she did die of a fractured skull. I pointed to my head and asked where exactly. It was in the back of the head. Back of the head? Back of the head. Because I've heard now front of the head <laughs> and now I hear back yes. of the head. Definitely back of the head. Yes. I didn't mention this during the interview, but I've seen the crime scene photos, which include close-ups of Susan's skull. She had no injuries to the back of her head. The injury that killed Susan LaRosa, according to her autopsy report, was to the front of her head, just above her forehead on the right side. Susan LaRosa stared at her killer as she was struck with a fatal blow to her head. So you think <clears throat> Bob killed your sister? Yes, I do. Do you think he acted alone in the next step of that? No, I do not. In the next episode of Paper Ghosts... I have night terrors. I see my mom. She's changing Mo on the changing table. She turned around and she slapped my brother in the face. Right on the nose. And it bled. It bled. It was bleeding. Did your dad ever have a station wagon? Um, yeah. Um, we owned a station wagon. The gentleman that was there, that showed up, he has on a red and black checkered um, flannel shirt and he smells. Even now, to this day, I, I, I can't smell that smell without, like, freezing. Paper Ghosts 
is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps. With help from producer Christina Everett and sound editing by Pete Cardi from Backroom Audio. A special thanks to Abu Safar and Will Pearson from iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 442, is written and performed by Tom Mooney and Thomas Phelps. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.